Church family, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. I referenced that in my prayer a few moments ago. We are two sermons away from finishing this dynamic book. I want you to find the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to find the 47th chapter, Jeremiah chapter 47, specifically this morning, yet generally, I'm going to be in 47, 48, and 49, because all of them deal with a multitude of people, people that were neighbors to Judah. I have a friend named Alex Sands. He pastors in Simpsonville, South Carolina. He recently served as the president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention, which was unique not only because he's a good leader. I love Alex. He's preached in our pulpit here, but because he was the first ever elected African-American pastor to serve as president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention, which is, was a historic and important step in the life of us as a people. Alex preached the convention message this November at First Baptist uh, Columbia, and while he was preaching there, he shared a great story. He said that he came home from work one day, and his neighbor had a sign in the yard. The sign said, Yard of the Month. Alex said he'd never cared much about his yard till he saw that sign in his neighbor's yard. He was a yard guy. He said his dad was meticulous in teaching him how correctly. Some of you who don't uh, quite um, have it all together enjoy yard work. We're praying for your spiritual maturity, but some of you love yard work. Now, right now, it's winter, it's wet, it's cold. I mean, there's a few things that you may choose to do, apply pre-emergent, maybe go ahead and get that mulch ordered. But when it begins to warm up in a few months, Many of you who enjoy yard work and landscaping will go to work and you will have immaculate yards. Alex said his yard was not immaculate, but it was pretty good. I mean, he, he did a good job of making sure he didn't allow non-native grasses to grow. He killed any crabgrass that he saw. He paid attention to anything that may be coming up in his mulch beds. He had his area drainage right, and he had worked really hard, but he honestly had never thought about it winning a contest until his neighbor got yard of the month. And he said he drove by the sign for a few days, maybe even a week, and at first he thought, well, good for him. And then he began to look at his neighbor's yard compared to his yard. And he said, what, what do I need to do to make sure that sign's in my yard next month? He said he went to work. He broke his back. He spent all kinds of money bringing his yard up to speed. He said he wasn't even sure who the committee was that chose. He just believed that if he outdid the yard of the month last month, that his yard would be recognized. The next month came. No sign was placed in his yard. The next month came, no sign was placed in his yard. Finally, in the midst of his pride, he walked over to his neighbor one day and he said, you have had the yard of the month for the last three months. You've seen all the work that I'm doing. He said, yeah, I've noticed, Alex. You've been working hard, man. He said, uh, what is it going to take for me to win that? He said, I don't know. I ordered it off Amazon. <laughs> Alex said, oh. And then he said, I walked right in my house. <laughs> I opened up my MacBook, and I ordered me a sign. <laughs> and he said, you would not believe it. But two months later, the guy across the street started cleaning up his yard and came over and said, Alex, what did you do to win this 
Award. Now, to be honest with you, we know what this is. This is a case of keeping up with the Joneses. It's a phrase we use in the American Dictionary or the Collins Dictionary online. It says, keep up with the Joneses in American English means to strive to get all the material things one's neighbor or associates have. And I would even add, or at least strive to give the image or the perception that you have achieved that equal to the status of your neighbors. We all talk about keeping up with the Joneses. I'd like to preach to you a message this morning simply entitled, Do Not Keep Up with the Joneses. And the reason I'm calling the sermon that is because Chapter 47, 48, and 49 of the book of Jeremiah are recounting prophecy that Jeremiah spoke not over Judah, but over Judah's neighbors, over the neighbors. You have to understand, you hold in your hand this morning the Bible, and in the Bible, whether you have a printed copy as I prefer or, or you have an app, inside of the Bible is this book of Jeremiah, one of the heaviest, longest most expansive examples of biblical prophecy. And the overwhelming majority of the words are prophecies from Jeremiah delivered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from God to the people of Judah. But as we saw last week, beginning in chapter 46, toward the end of the book, or rather the end of the accumulation of these prophecies, Jeremiah looks to the neighbors of Judah and says, Judah's not alone. Judah's not alone in dealing with the sin that brought down Judah. It's a sin that continually plagued the nations around Judah. You see, Judah's neighbors had the same problem that Judah had, sinful pride. Pride is what causes us to want to keep up with the Joneses. Pride is what takes the place of God in our heart. Pride, as we'll see in a few moments, is really the root cause of almost every other struggle in our lives. And I recognize that there are obvious manifestations of pride that we can all spot. But do me a favor. Decide that you and I all can struggle with pride as I open this passage to you. And go ahead and ask in prayer. As you listen to this sermon, for God to speak to you, not about your neighbor's pride, not about pastor's pride, not about your enemy's pride, or someone who's hurt you pride, about your pride. How would pride manifest itself in your life? Where does it cause you to struggle? We know that Jeremiah dealt extensively with Judah's pride. But now what we're finding as we read these prophecies together very quickly, rather an overview, we're going to see that the same sin that brought Judah down ultimately brought all these other nations down. In fact, I told you last week, why would we even study the fate of ancient nations that don't exist anymore? And I, I gave you four quick reasons just by review. We studied them because it doesn't matter whether or not you're in Judah or not. God's moral laws and moral authorities are universal. This is why we as believers would never force anyone to trust Christ. That can only be a decision made by them under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But we do make private and public decisions based on our values because we think God's law 
and God's morality is universal. Secondly, God doesn't tolerate or is indifferent to sin anywhere or at any time. Third, God is over the fate of all nations. There's no nation, past, present, or future, that's not under the control of God. And finally, and this speaks directly to this idea of pride, nations, cultures, and individuals almost always fall from within. And what is the great enemy within the human heart? Well, the Bible would say over and over again, it is pride. So let me just draw out three truths, and I'll show you what I mean. First, I want you to see the fate of pride. Where does pride lead? If you have your Bible open to chapter 47, what you'll notice is that we begin with a subheading of nations. The editors of my translation, the English Standard Version, have supplied the word judgment on the Philistines. If you look across the page at the top of chapter 48, you'll see it says the judgment of Moab. And what you're going to find is each of these nations is listed. And then poetic language of judgment is given. So, for example, in chapter 47, beginning in verse 2, thus says the Lord, Behold, the waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent. And they shall overflow the land, and all fills it, and the city, and those who dwell in it. Man shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail. Verse 5 of chapter 47 speaks to the terrible destruction. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourselves in, put, put yourself into your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord, verse 17, has given it a charge? So there is this poetic, prophetic treatment that the Philistines are going to fall. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up in church, when I would hear pastors reference ancient nations or places, I may or may not have some familiarity, but I always found it helped me if I could see a picture. Some of you are visual. Now, I'm not a big graphs or maps guy in the preaching event. If you took one of my courses, you might see a lot more of that. But, but very quickly, let me just show you where these countries are. So Philistia, or Philistia, the Philistines, in chapter 47, is located to the east, excuse me, to the west of Jerusalem. Now, this is an ancient picture of, or excuse me, a picture of how the ancient nations in Jeremiah's day would have been broken down. The red dot represents the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital of the kingdom of Judah. You'll be able to see that there. The kingdom to the north of Judah is Israel. It has already fallen. It does not exist in Jeremiah's day. It's already been destroyed and defeated. Judah was the mainstay, and it was their pride in the fact that they had not fallen that caused them to fall. But just to the west of the kingdom of Judah are the coastal plains known as Philistia, where the Philistines were. Now, the Philistines have been an ancient enemy of the people of God. Saul dealt with the Philistines. David dealt with the Philistines. In addition to Saul and David, Samson had run-ins with the Philistines. And, of course, we all know the most famous Philistine in the Bible is, of course, the giant Goliath. And Goliath really is a manifestation of God's struggle with the Philistines. 
It was their pride. Their pride in their own warrior culture and their ability to fight for themselves. And that's what you find in the language. But after the Philistines are dealt with, look again in chapter 48. We see the judgment of Moab. Look what the Bible says in chapter 48, verse 1. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, that's a city in Moab. Woe to Nebo, woe to Kerithim. It's put to shame, it is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. Now I've showed you where the Philistines lived. Here's where the Moabites live. If you'll look, it is to the east of the kingdom of Judah. So again, the Philistines were to the west. The black arrow shows where Moab was. It is to the east. And if we're looking for a telltale sign of the pride of the Moabites, look in your copy of God's Word at verse 7, where God is dealing with them. He says, For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh, this was the Moabite god, of course a false god, Chemosh shall go into exile with all his priests and his officials. Why? It says it again. Look on the screen. You trusted in your works and in your treasures, you shall be taken. One of the things we find when we do an autopsy of pride is that pride is not the lack of trust. Pride's not the lack of faith. Pride is just trusting and faithing yourself. It's trusting in your own wants and your own desires and their ability to bring you fulfillment. This is what pride does. This is how it works. And so we saw it in the Philistines. We see it in the Moabites. And if you'll take your Bible and turn to chapter 49, you'll see it in the kingdom of Ammon. In chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom disposed Gad and his people settled in the cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbath of the Ammonites. Now, where is Ammon? Where is this kingdom? Well, look again on the screen. I'll show you. If you go north of Moab, across, of course, the Jordan River from where ancient Israel was, these are the Ammonites. But look at verse 4 of chapter 49 and see if the language doesn't come back. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? These rhetorical questions permeate prophetic words like Jeremiah. When God is dealing with a group of people and he's bringing judgment on them, he's saying, why did you boast in what you could do? Why was your pride in your health and welfare, your nation and national interests? Why were your own abilities and successes the source of your identity? These are the rhetorical questions of a God brokenhearted over a people who have allowed pride to separate them. Now, again, we're just working through these nations very quickly in order to make a point. Look at the very next nation in chapter 49, beginning in verse 7, the kingdom of Edom. Where's Edom? Well, if you look on the map, I'll show you. 
Edom is south of Judah. Edom lies south of Judah. And specifically in the prophecy against Edom, look at verse 16 of chapter 49. Verse 16 of chapter 49. The horror you inspire has deceived you. So Edom was big and bad and would cause other people to despise them, but that came back to haunt them. It has deceived you. And the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold to the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. The Edomites were known to settle mountainous regions, and they were proud of the fact that the nature of their geography made an assault on them difficult. And what they did is they began to feel secure in their surroundings, secure in their national security. As a pastor, I have watched my generation be rattled by the unsettling and the divide of our country. I'm not preaching in the country my grandfather grew up in. You're not living in the country your grandfather grew up in. Now, I'm not a gloom and goon now. I'm not a pessimist guy. I'm not pessimistic. I praise God for where we live. I'm grateful for it. But you see the fabric and the culture and the DNA of our country changing. You see it before your eyes. Now, we can make theological arguments as to what the Lord is doing one way or the other. I wouldn't trade where I am. I don't think a Christian should despise their generation. I don't think a Christian should resent the sovereign control of God to place you where he's placed you, at the time he's placed you, around the people he's placed you. In fact, it is my hope and prayer that as we continue to see the moral decay of our nation, that people will see how bankrupt the world's promises are and that they will turn to to Jesus, and we see that. We see people coming to our church and coming to faith, coming to Christ because they put their faith in their own security. They put their faith in their own interests, and those things ultimately failed them. This, if you will, out of respect, I wouldn't use this term often, but this is the broken record of Jeremiah. It keeps saying it over and over and over and over again. It is the pride of the heart of a woman or a man that puts them in a position to have separation between them and God. Edom's not alone. Look at the next nation, chapter 49. No no sooner have we dealt with Edom that we deal with the kingdom of Damascus. And this recounted in verses 23 through verse 27. Where's Damascus? Well, look on the screen. I'll show you. It's north of Ammon. It's north of Ammon. And so Damascus is an area where King Nebuchadnezzar will conquer as well. It was a place known for its fame. In fact, if you look in the scriptures beginning in verse 24, Damascus has become feeble. She turned to flee. And panic seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as of a woman in labor. How has this famous city not forsaken the city of my joy? So Jeremiah talks about this once beautiful, famous city. And now it is forsaken 
the Lord. Just to finish up these nations quickly, the very next nation is really two areas listed in one, Kedar and Hazor. They're actually two different places, and some scholars debate as to how Jeremiah saw their connection. Hazor is really a city in the very north. You'll see that arrow there. And, and uh, Kedar is a nomadic region, which would have been west of Edom. Now, that's important. Because the nomadic people were a little bit hard to conquer because they could move around. You didn't know where they were going to be. In fact, look what the Scripture says beginning in verse 31 of chapter 49. Rise up, advance against the nation at ease that dwells securely, declares the Lord, that has no gates or bars, that dwells alone. Why would a nation never build gates, bars, or walls? Because they were so confident in their ability to outmove, outmaneuver, and outwit their enemy that they never settled down. And what we're going to find is that just like the Judeans, Nebuchadnezzar's army of Babylon finds them and marches over them like the foot of a soldier on a cricket in a field. Ultimately, their pride got them. Last one, kingdom of Elam or Elam. Where's Elam at? Well, I'll show you very quickly. Elam is the furthest east. These are the deserts that lie between where Babylonia was and where Judah was. And what does the scripture say? Beginning in verse 35, the Elamites had something in common with your pastor. They loved archery. They were good with a bow, probably a lot better than me. I've never had to defend my life with a bow. They said, thus said the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam. Notice what he calls it the mainstay of their might. The Elamites were known in antiquity as being so good at archery warfare that they became confident in their abilities. What do modern dictators do? What do nations do? When a dictator wants to show his force, he will plan a large gathering of the nation and he will march before him the entire army. And as they march by him, you've seen images like this from North Korea. You've seen images like this from Nazi Germany. As they marched by with their tanks and their missiles and their thousands upon thousands of men in uniform, they salute the dictator. What is the dictator doing? He's displaying his might and strength before a people that he intends to control and rule with submission, and if they don't submit, with force. And this is what happened with the Elamites. They flaunted their bows, and God says, I'm going to break their bow. Now, that's a quick overview to make one point. Pride kills. The fate of a prideful people is never to achieve the will of God. The fate of a prideful person is to put themselves in a position where they are hindered in their walk with the Lord or sadly kept from ever having won, which leads, I think, to an application of this overview, the fear of pride. Now, we love to talk about how Christ helps us overcome our fears, but do you know that not all fear is a bad thing? I want to teach my little ones to fear a hot stove. I teach my children to fear running out into a busy street. There are fears in our lives that keep us safe. The Bible continually speaks about the fear of pride. One of the greatest Christian minds in the 20th century 
was a man named C.S. Lewis. You know what he said about pride? He said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, a little bit of an older word. It means to not be loving, to be unloving. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. (laughs) Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and in every family since the world began. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because his pride welled up when Abel's offering was received and Cain's was not. Why did Satan rebel against God in heaven? Because in pride he wanted God's power and authority. How did he tempt Adam and Eve in the garden? He spoke to their pride when he said, did God really say? And is it not true that he doesn't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil? It was pride. And we've seen this, church family. Some of you are new to our church. We're so glad to have you. But for those of you who have been with me over the last 37 years as I've walked through Jeremiah, I just want to make sure you're listening. We've seen this all throughout Jeremiah. Remember what God said to the Jews in Jeremiah chapter 5? Do you not fear me? So God is looking at a proud people. He's saying, do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? And notice what God says. He uses nature, and there's nothing bigger in nature than the ocean. Nothing bigger in nature than the ocean. I placed the sand as the boundary of the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Do you ever think about that? As powerful and mighty as the sea is, it's not in Montana this morning. Do you know why? Because God said stop at the beach, and it does. And when it overflows just a few miles, look at the destruction it brings. But it always, always retreats to the sand. The ancient man saw this and said, even the ocean obeys. I place the sand as the boundary of the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Jeremiah went on to say, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. This is not only a God who is in righteous anger. This is a God who's heartbroken over a people. He said, I'll give you everything. And they turned from him to pride, and pride manifests itself in idolatry. Remember, people never worship idols. People don't chase after false gods for the promises of the false god. All an idol is is a cover-up self-worship. You basically construct what you want and then form the idol to meet it. I mean, look at the grotesque, uh, the crude nature of the ancient idols You can tell that the heart of sinful men came up with them. Jeremiah deals with this again in chapter 9, probably one of the passages that spoke to me the most in this journey. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Some people are rich. Some people are poor. Some people are healthy. Some people are sick. Some people are incredibly gifted and wise. Other people, like most of us, are average and doing the best we can. He said, no matter what your lot is in life, don't boast in that. Boast in knowing me. And therein lies this idea that I want to recognize the love of God. But it begins with the fear of what my love of self might bring. Fearing pride. Of course, the place to go for wisdom in the Bible is the book of Proverbs. What does Proverbs say about it? Over and over again. When pride comes, what comes right after that? Disgrace. Even this week, I was confronted with another prominent pastor in our nation who is gone, disqualified for having an adulterous affair. Breaks our heart. But I know how that works. Not an adulterous affair. By God's grace, I don't. But I know how sin works. Pride. Pride begins to think you're above accountability. Pride begins to think you can entertain emotional relationships or flirtatious comments, that you can entertain the attention of someone other than your wife in a romantic setting and not go too far. It is pride that justifies this type of thing, and it always leads to disgrace. But what does the Bible say? But with the humble is wisdom. I love how the proverbial writer says it this way. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. It's a biblical word for a prideful posture. But humility comes before honor. The last one out of Proverbs I'll just share with you quickly. One's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So there are things in Scripture that we study and do the best we can and we scratch our heads and we wrestle with. But then there are truths like this that could not be clearer which leads to my final application of these seven nations where is the faith to overcome this pride i think i've done a fairly at least complete job to the best of my ability in the last 20 minutes of explaining pride how do you overcome it it's one thing to tell me about the problem pastor tell me about the solution well fortunately the solution is not just a list of principles or realigning your priorities. In fact, that'll last a little while till your pride takes over. You can actually grow prideful in the steps you're taking. The solution is a person. His name is Jesus. In fact, I just want you to listen to the Word of God this morning from Philippians chapter 2. Just listen to this. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So he basically said, if any of you had any of those things, any of you ever felt God's love? This would be the audience participation portion of the sermon. Any of you ever felt how wonderful it is to be loved by another Christian? I, I, I have. Have, have any of you ever seen the Spirit of God give you guidance in your life? I know to me, it, it, it amazes me his patience with me in guiding me. Sometimes he needs to guide me firmly, but often he guides me tenderly. So, so Paul's saying, if that's any of you, here's what I want you to do, verse 2, Philippians 2, complete my joy of being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. How do we do that? Like, how do you and I really love each other, really experience unity? We can talk about it. We can have nice graphics and beautiful buildings and great-looking websites. But what really happens when a people truly come together? What is the prerequisite of that? Whether you be 17 or 77 in the room, whether you be new to Jesus or you've been walking with him for decades, how do we become a people that truly shows the love of Christ? Well, here's how, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Wow, that's a tall order. It'd be great if there was a model for that. Oh, there is. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to the interest of his own interest, but able, excuse me, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I think theology matters. Look at me. Listen to me. When people get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live in them. Of course, the Holy Spirit and Christ and the Father are one. And inside of the triune God, the Spirit of God who dwells in us, then begins to transform us daily. That's called sanctification. And he does not leave any area of our life alone. And therefore, we are to develop, according to the Scriptures, the mind of Christ. Now, he's not talking about raw intelligence. We're all at different levels there. And to be honest with you, most of us are right in the middle. He's talking about a mind that thinks and views the world the way Christ does and not the way the world does. That mind is what takes over when I want to think about myself. No, wait a minute. I need to think about my brother. When I want to think about what I want, no, wait a minute, what does she need? What does he want? What does God want? Now, interestingly, when Paul says this, he goes on to show how Christ didn't just speak of humility, but how he is the epitome of humility. Look what the Scripture says. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's Christmas. We just had it. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the ultimate act of humility is for God to become man and this God-man to become a sacrifice. So there is the descent from the throne into the flesh and a descent from the flesh into an unknowable, dishonorable death on the cross. But what did Proverbs say? What does Jeremiah say? What does Isaiah say? What does the testimony of Scripture say over and over? If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. If you will be humble, God will give you wisdom. If you are humble of spirit, God will sustain you. Well, look what God did to Jesus after his ultimate humility. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that that name, Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So if you really want to fight pride, chase Jesus. If you really want your life to begin to allow the tentacles of God's heavenly humility 
to invade every dark closet, every nook, every cranny, every thought taken captive. You have to focus on the Lord who understands humility because he lived it. And he still lives it today. He's no longer the suffering servant. He's no longer the defeated one. He's no longer the dead one. He lives, but he lives to intercede for you and me. He's still serving me. He's still at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and me. He provided for me, fed me yesterday. Listen when I spoke to him this morning. Allows the cardiovascular system in my chest to pump blood to my body. Has given me and you life. Look around you and see that he's still serving us. And therefore, if he could serve and love me, I ought to be able to serve and love others. Every day, when I leave the metropolis of North Ennery, where I live, and I open the gate, you have to open the gate to get out of there, I open the gate, and I get on Highway 221, and I come into Woodruff, I see this sign every day. Love yourself first. Now, I have to be honest with you, it's a federal program about low-cost birth control. I'm not in any way trying to speak against making sure people have access to birth control to the degree to which the birth control that is used is, lines up with biblical values. I'm not talking about abortion or morning after pill. But what bothers me is that this is a federally funded program and there is no nuance, there's no subtlety. Three words, and it is a command. Love yourself first. And this is the resounding message of the world. Love yourself first. And yet the Bible that I read could not be more opposite. If God had loved himself first, we'd all be in hell. If God had left himself first, loved himself first, he would have never showed back up at the garden after Adam and Eve rebelled against him, much less sent his son to die for us. I, I'm so grateful that while I don't understand the greatness of the mystery of the love of God, that the testimony of God is that he pursues us, that he loves us. And therein lies the greatest enemy of the love of God in my heart. It's love of self. And love of self has a name. It's called pride. So the world says, keep up with your neighbor. One up your neighbor. Show up your neighbor. But when I look at Judah's neighbors, I'm reminded of what the word says. Love your neighbor. Serve your neighbor. Tell your neighbor about Christ. Do you trust God enough to lay down your pride and believe that he has something so much better for you? What's that look like in your life? I do not know. That's why I'm so grateful to serve a Holy Spirit that can teach you and show you. Would you bow with me?